what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now, from the beginning. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. I think the world is looking less and less like me. Uh, and, and I think if you're if you're practicing law in a commercial setting the way I do, you have to be acutely aware of how the world is changing. So just to be effective in court and in front of juries, you have to be very aware of what your team looks like, right? And, and it's not just having people of diverse backgrounds on the team, they need to be doing meaningful and material activities. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is my good friend, Mike Rose, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm good. Nice to hear from you. Good to good to hear you as well. Um, I, I should let everybody know we've known each other for... 35 years, I guess it is. Do I have to admit to that? <laughs> yeah, because, you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but before we get started, um, I will read a few. I'll, I'll let people kind of know who you are. Um, they can Google you uh, or look you up on your firm's wo- uh, website if they want to know more, because there's a lot more. Too much for me to, to say. Um here, but Mike Rhodes currently is global chair of Cooley's, uh, L- Cooley LLP Cyber Data Privacy and Internet Practice Groups, and formerly was the global chair of the firm's litigation department and a member of the firm's uh, management committee. Um, and Mike, I know that you uh, attended undergrad at UCLA, boo, uh, fight on USC and um, attended Loyola Law School. Um, uh, Out of law school, you uh, went to uh, work at Gibson as an associate and about four years in, uh, lateral to Cooley to help start the little known Newport Beach office, which is where we met. and uh, all those 35 years ago, did what? What did I leave out? No, that you got it. Okay. So what? Um, there's a lot I think that we can talk about here. I mean, if you look at, um, tell the audience if you look at uh, Cooley's uh, site and look up Mike. I mean the accolades just go on and on and on. He's chamber ranked, uh, rated. Uh, litigate, litigator uh, of the the year of the week. I mean, it, there's just a lot there. So although this isn't uh, uh, a conversation about your substantive practice, I do want you to talk a little bit about your practice, who you represent, and um, kind of, you know, kind of tell us your story. Give us Give us a little, give us an idea of your journey, where you're from, how you grew up, who was influential in your life, and how you decided to become a badass litigator. 
Well, I think like a lot of people, it was somewhat accidental. Um, I grew up in San Diego, basically. Uh, that's where I went to primary education, high school. Uh, I was a middle-class kid living in the San Diego suburbs. My passions were surfing, uh, primarily in motorcycle riding, and went to UCLA out of high school because um, it was just up the road and seemed very familiar. Studied history because I wanted to be either a professor or an archaeologist, both of which turned out to be somewhat lame objectives. Uh, <laughs> and, <laughs> and when I graduated, uh, it took me a little bit longer than four years to get out of undergraduate. So I had like maybe a six month period of time. And during that period, I decided after talking with some folks because uh, I had gotten into the UCLA history department for grad school and decided, as one of my advisors put it so eloquently, this is like 1980, uh, cut your hair and go to law school. Uh, so that's what I did. And I was pretty clueless, honestly, when I went to law school. I, I didn't really know what that journey would be like. So I went to Loyola, I did very well. And then I joined Gibson uh, out of law school downtown, liked the firm quite a lot, still have some friends there. And uh, was doing mostly, you know, business litigation, some antitrust work. And then I met uh, a couple of people from Cooley coincidentally through a matter that I was working on. And they recruited me twice, once in 1986 to come to the Bay Area. And then again in 1987 to start up the Southern California operation with Bob Gunderson, who has his own firm now, Gunderson Detmer. Both Bob Gunderson and Scott Detmer were Cooley partners at the time. So yeah. I signed I signed on, as you will recall, uh, to be in Newport Beach. I got there, was a fourth or fifth year associate uh, doing litigation. And it was mostly a business uh, office play, you know, tech play in the Orange County area. Uh, Bob went off to start his own firm, and I found myself in this very small office of, you know, four, five, six people. Um, and as they say, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. So I became kind of a, you know, I, I learned to chase business very early in my career. Uh, I ultimately went to San Diego in 90, at the end of 91, where I was from. I, was, I had two very little kids and thought that would be a great place to raise my kids. The firm wanted to open an office there. And so we were up and running by the spring of 92. And at the time, I was the only litigation partner for, for a number of years and sort of just did whatever uh, either I sourced or that was coming in through the business department. And it was mostly tech clients. And by the mid-90s, end of the 90s, I was doing a lot of internet work, such as it was at that time. I fell into the digital music world. Uh, got involved and tried a well-known case at the time uh, in New York. And then I think around 2000, probably, uh, I started working with eBay when they were very small. One of my former partners had become the general counsel there. And then uh, one of the lawyers from eBay went to another startup called Google. And another one of the lawyers at eBay went to yet another startup called Facebook. And this is around 2006. So I started working with those companies and at the time I was the the department chair uh, for litigation and our new managing partner was pushing me very hard to leave my beach house uh, in Del Mar where I surfed almost every day, as people knew me then, uh, to come to the Bay Area because of the increasing work that I was seeing coming out of my practice uh, representing these growing, fast growing internet companies. So ultimately, we got a place in San Francisco in 2009, and I think maybe around 2014 or 15, 
we cut ties with Southern California entirely and sort of split our time between San Francisco and North Sonoma wine country. And my practice ultimately evolved into the big internet companies. And in the last four or five years, I've been doing a lot of work in sort of the general celebrity space uh, in mm -hmm. LA as the tech media social media in particular and sort of influencer endorser world all sort of converge to create sort of business models around that activity. So today I'm the primary counsel to the Kardashian-Jenner family, for example. I represent Justin Bieber and a number of other actors and, and, and people like that. Got it. So how's the surfing in San Francisco? <laughs> Uh, non-existent as far as I'm concerned, I, I'm concerned because I'm too old and the water's too cold. So, so I, I still will go out. I still go out in, in, I have a place in Los Cabos, Mexico. So I still go out there, but my days of chasing, you know, the, the, the waves around the world into Indo and Fiji and Central America and all that stuff, that's probably behind me now. Okay. So as you know, this, this, uh, uh, podcast is about getting beyond stereotypes. What are stereotypes? You know, how to, you know, everybody has them. Um, everybody uses, you know, uses them and everybody is subjected to them. You know, my question for you, Mike, to start is what stereotypes do you feel people make about you and why? And, and why, why are they right or why are they wrong? Well, and that's a really interesting question, given that I'm sort of the prototypical Southern California blonde-haired male, yeah. right? So yeah. let's just put that let's just put that on the table. And in fact, yeah. there's a great story you and I could tell about you know some of our early experiences together. But I, I think of it this way: is that there are times when um, I'm put into the stereotype of that prototype, meaning I'm going to have a worldview or a political viewpoint or a sociological viewpoint that may be more consistent with being, um, you know, at this point, the one of the very senior partners in a big, large law firm and having the mantle of being a white male. So uh, at least from that limited perspective, I can understand how sometimes it's frustrating for people to put that on you in a, in a less sort of, you know, uh, significant way. One of the things I've noticed as I've gotten older is the younger lawyers are sometimes intimidated about coming into my office, so to speak, and just asking for help or kicking kicking an issue around or being more collegial than they would be with younger people because they they think of me as being sort of, you know, on this pedestal. And, and that objectification sometimes kind of is offensive because it means that you don't have that camaraderie that I, I prefer, at least in my teams. Right. Um, and as you know, I'm I'm married to a woman of color, uh, she's a Latina. And so I see the world a lot through her eyes and that's colored my my perception for a long time. So I'm acutely aware that there are times when um, she's perceiving a stereotype being applied to either us as a family or her in particular that I don't see. And so I try to be cognizant of the fact that I may not be even aware of them at times. Yeah, and say hi to Lisa for me, by the I way. I will. She's a badass in her own right. Um, so there's a lot of talk about white privilege. And, you know, you kind of alluded to this, you know, you or you talked about the stereotype that you're subjected to. You know, 
and and part of that stereotype, I think, if we really, you know, are honest about it, is that, you know, because you're a straight white blonde male, um, you know, big time partner, that you uh, enjoy privileges that a lot of us and, and others don't um, enjoy. Uh, and don't get me wrong, I know that I, because of the things I've uh, experienced and the things that I've been able to accomplish, I have privileges as well. But do do you agree with that? And and what do you do to deal with that? Especially since you know your family is you know you're you you have a diverse family. It's it's a really important topic that I think people in my so-called demographic class are very uncomfortable addressing head on. I think the reality is, if you're like me and you come from, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't have any disadvantages as a child, but we, we didn't have much money, right? It, there was right. working class people, middle class. I went to public schools; they weren't the best. I went to a public university because it was the inexpensive and you could afford to do it. And through your own hard work, you know, you get good grades, you work hard, you, you climb the ladder of law firms, and you get to the top. And you, you want to say to yourself, it's all because of your hard work, your industry, uh, your intelligence, and all of those things. And, and I probably am guilty of, of thinking that way, at least in the earlier phases of my life. I, I've come to appreciate much more so at my current station and age that the entire system, and, and I mean that in the largest sense, politically, economically, educationally, sociologically, um, was sort of if it wasn't intelligently designed in favor of people like me, it it, it certainly ended up being that way, right? right? Intelligently, right. I mean, I mean intentionally, not like this is the way we should do it. What I mean is this was sort of a an intentional uh, process. And I'll tell you a short story about somebody that you know. Uh, years and years ago, probably 30 plus years ago, I went in on a Sunday of all things to meet a board of directors of a of a big important tech client with a senior partner that you know quite well, and I'll just call him Dan, let's mm -hmm. say. And we, the two of us pitched a very large piece of work together. And, and we came out of the meeting and uh, Dan was my boss and we, we had a chat and he asked me the following somewhat rhetorical question. Uh, Cause he said, you did a great job, Mike. I was really proud of you. You killed it in there. What do you think the board saw in you? And I kind of, fumbled around and he said, they saw a very talented young lawyer doing his thing. What do you think they saw when I walked into the room? I didn't say anything. And he said, they saw a very talented, sophisticated black trial lawyer. And he, he, he cared for me and he was trying to mentor me to realize that in his life, right, every time we get into that kind of a setting, there was an additional thing that was attached to him that would never be attached to me right and it was the first time that that kind of notion of and at the time i wouldn't have put it as white privilege right that's more of a, a contemporary concept but mm -hmm. it was sort of a manifestation of this very thing you're trying to get me to talk about which is it never had occurred to me honestly that it, it maybe it didn't give me an advantage but i didn't have to overcome anything either and his right. point was he had to establish himself on these two different levels. One is a quality lawyer that's deserving of the work and the fact that 
you know, they were going to perceive him as a black quality lawyer deserving of the work. And he had to kind of overcome two hurdles. So that's how I think about it, which is the majority class, the majority group has to come to realization that we're largely blind to it. And, and so the first step of the process is to understand that it does exist, to acknowledge it, and then try to understand what you can do uh, to have better empathy for people around you that, that aren't the beneficiaries of that innate tailwind. Exactly. And, and for our audience's edification, you were talking about Dan Johnson, and, and, and we actually uh, uh, interviewed uh, Dan the first year that we did the podcast, uh, and it's, it's a fascinating interview. So um, and he may have even mentioned that story. He, he mentioned a lot of things. You, you know Dan. There was a lot of stories. Yeah. Um, <laughs> the story, stories are going to come out quite naturally. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, you mentioned hard work, you mentioned good grades, you mentioned, you know, uh, uh, kind of, you know, pull your, not, you didn't say pull yourself up, but, but you mentioned that, that those types of things. And, you know, do you believe that, you know, our, our industry is a meritocracy? I do at at some level. Uh, I think the I think though, uh, if we use data as our guide, I think then you could challenge what I just said. And what I mean by that is my own experience is having gone to a second choice law school, right? That's not I didn't go to an Ivy League school, so you have to overcome a lot in the sense of getting into the the premier law firms and staying there and then rising to the top. Uh, so you have to kind of outwork everybody. Um, but if you look at the objective data, uh, it sort of paints a different story, doesn't it? So you look yeah. at you, we can we can we can look at data and I've, I've looked at some of this data. You can look at the percentage of let's take UC, which is where I went to school. What are the percentage of and then fill in the blank of what demographic you want to look at or what ethnic group you want to look at? And then you kind of track those folks into graduate schools, track those folks into investment banks, accounting firms, law firms those kinds of things, and then start looking at the partnership ranks and then narrow it down to equity partner ranks. And it tells a story that is quite at odds, frankly, with the notion that it's a meritocracy. Now, I think it is a meritocracy, but that it's a meritocracy that works for uh, a, a certain group of people who have the cultural affinity with understanding yeah. how that ecosystem really operates. And I think one of the challenges we, we've seen in the profession, I've been doing this almost 40 years now, and we've talked about you know, diversity and inclusion for a long time. I think initially it was very demographic or metrical, right? How many people of color, how many women, how many LGBTQ, fill in the blank, people do you have in your, your, your population? And firms did a good job of sort of trying to address it at that numerical or metrical level but the real challenge is that a lot of those uh those groups those underprivileged underrepresented groups marginalized groups whatever uh nomenclature you want to use the they struggle on these cultural levels and and i yeah. think you and i could tell a story about your days in newport beach and the day you took me to where you live 
and to give tell me the, tell that story tell that you story. want me to tell that story yeah yeah so, tell so story. for the group merle and i were we were we were pretty close and I, I don't know maybe you were a year or two behind me but we were pretty close so it wasn't much of a hierarchy we were just two associates working in newport beach and you we got to like each other and one day merle invited me to come to her house with to meet her and her husband jeff and to play tennis and to basically spend the day in her neighborhood and she lives in a nice part of inglewood in uh, los angeles area um, and uh, I spent the entire day with her and a lot of her friends. And there, I think there was a, maybe a backyard barbecue and a bunch of folks came and maybe it was a Saturday, maybe it was a Sunday. The following week, we kind of talked in the office and you asked me what my, my experience was. And I, I said, oh, it's great. But you kind of pushed on me. You said, what was it like for you? And because it was us, I said to you the honest answer. I said, it was a little weird. Right, and because you were the only white person. I was the only white person there. Right. And 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 of course, and the other thing that was interesting, kind of eye-opening for me, was all of your friends and colleagues that you had around were bankers, lawyers, doctors, accountants, right? Um, and lived in a beautiful area, nice homes, right? Drove expensive cars, so it was a whole different slice of the world that I, I normally wouldn't see. But your point was that's me every single day in Newport Beach. Yep. And and again, kind of like my story about Dan, it was another way, and I've told that story over the years because it it I remember the feeling, and the word I used was weird. It wasn't bad, it was nice actually, but there was always this kind of a little buzz around you, right? Because you just were different. And I was imagining you getting your car every day, driving from your house to our office in Newport Beach, which let's face it, was a very Caucasian area at the time. I don't know what it is now, but it, at the time, you know, the business community at least was very white. And every every interaction you had, you were sort of the only African-American in the context. And so I started to appreciate that that little buzz that you feel would be kind of exhausting, right, over time. Yeah. yeah. And so what I mean by the this idea of affinity, I think law firms had to transition from just thinking about numbers of people to, okay, it's not only numbers of people, but are they advancing? And if they're not advancing, why aren't they advancing? Is it because the culture is just not comfortable for them or we haven't thought about their point of view to make it more, uh, make the the law firm environment more acclimatized to people that have a completely different worldview or experience than the people that designed it. And I think that's, if we kind of fast forward to where we are today, I think that is sort of the, the harder part of the struggle, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and it's interesting because I think had, you know, I, I summered at Cooley my first summer and got a got an offer to join that as a 1L and then um, ended up, Bob Gunderson talked me into starting at that Newport Beach office because I had moved to LA already and, and talked me out of MoFo and into to Cooley. I think that if, had I started in San Francisco, I might have, stayed longer but that Newport Beach experience was just hard it, it was I, I remember being in in Neiman Marcus just shopping and having people come up to me constantly and asking me where stuff was because they thought I worked there um and 
you know, it was just, it, it, as you, you know, exhausting is, is the perfect description of, you know, how that, those, those microaggressions just, just people talk about them as tiny cuts that just build up over and over and over again. And, um, you know, and so, yeah, that is, it's difficult. So, so let's talk about grades and scores. I mean, do you think that grades and and scores are true predictors of who will do well ultimately you know in the legal profession oh yeah i i'm uh, skeptical of that in many ways i i think that we it goes back to how we think about intelligence and um and how we perceive intelligence in others um it's, uh, you know, I went to uh, what would be considered by the big law firms a relatively lousy law school, right? Yes, I graduated at the top of my class, but, um, you know, so I'm sort of an example of the irrelevancy of that. Ultimately, it has to do with, you know, how you got there and who you are. And I don't think grades and test scores really tell you very much about the kind of innate qualities that will make someone successful at a, in a given profession. So no. And I also think it's there's a philosophical discussion about intelligence that can be made. I'll, I'll just tell you a very short story. I once, okay. and not that long ago, but in my late 50s, I chartered with some friends a boat in the very southern Maldivian atoll. So most people go to the Maldives, they go to the northern atolls for a vacation. We went surfing in the southern two atolls, one called Sinu and one called Gough. And there were seven of us, and then the boat we were on was like 90 feet, and there were seven uh, crew members. And they were from a ethnic group called the Devehi people. And they were sort of a cross between people that came out of Sri Lanka and then uh, were sort of, uh, connected to and, and sort of in, inbred with the Arabic uh, sea vessels that would come down the west coast of India. Um, and they were an Islamic culture, a really interesting group of people, really lovely. And there was a guy in the boat named Muhammad who was, I think, 18 or 19. Mm -hmm. And we got to talking with him because, you know, we were on the boat for 14 days, I guess. Um, and he had never worn shoes and never been to school. And, you know, we went through, you know, two weeks living on a boat, close confinement. We went through a typhoon uh, where we had to anchor the boat. And I remember talking to my law partner, Koji Fukumura, uh, about our experience and how we came away thinking Muhammad was one of the smartest people we'd ever met. Both of us mm -hmm. felt that way because in every situation he was just superior, whether it was fishing, whether it was doping out the lineup or where to go surfing or the tide information or how to anchor the boat to go through a storm or just anything. And I remember thinking about that experience and thinking about how we think of intelligence, at least in, in kind of the Western world, in this very metrical way. You know, your grades, what schools you go to, what test scores you got. And I think we have it all wrong. I think that intelligence is the ability to actualize yourself in a given environment, you know, better than other people. And I don't wow. think law, law firms do anything to try to, to figure no. out what that is. Um, and, right, but you know, that kind of goes back to the, you know, a lot of that is, is, is historical, right? I mean, it goes back to one of the original things that you said about this, the, the system being set up a certain way. Yeah. You know, I, 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 I kind of believe, you know, I, I feel that, 
the result, you know, the system is set up to get a, a desired result. And the result is to keep a, a certain demographic in power. And, and, and that's, you know, and, and, and on top, and, and that's how it's been for hundreds of years. And it's almost like you can solve, if you know what you want the, the, the solution to be, you can come up with a way to reach that solution uh, and, and, and have it seem equitable, have it seem fair. Right. Well, well, let me give you an, let me give you a, a more legalistic uh, example of this thinking you're talking about. So I was an extern uh, law clerk in my third year in law school for Judge Takasugi in the Central District of California. I w my grades were high enough where they sent me. They said you can be a law clerk in your third year, and and I was like, that's great. I could get a clerkship, but I don't have to actually take a year off. Right. And after which I became relatively close with uh, the judge because I was the first, I think I was the first non-Asian clerk he'd had in his chambers. Um, and he had a funny name for me in Japanese that was kind of an insult, but it was a, it was a term of endearment. <laughs> anyway, I, he asked me after I started uh, practicing law, he asked me if I would join a small group of lawyers that had formed a bar review course through the Asian Pacific Legal Center in Los Angeles for diverse uh, law students who had struggled with the bar. And they had all kinds of data suggesting that test taking anxiety and just the strategies of how to take the test were holding people back. And so I taught constitutional law for this bar review course and had a lot of experienced lawyers that did it. There's about, I don't know, maybe a dozen of us. And we would teach how to take the test as opposed to you know, here's the subject matter of of what's going to be on the bar. Right. And and our results kind of proved your point, which is that if you changed how people prepared for it, you could get them through the test quite easily. Um, but a lot of it was their whether their cultural orientation to it, just the way they've been socialized to think about the test, just the way the test was set up and written. Uh, a lot of uh, and, you know, diverse students were struggling with the bar, at least failing it once or twice before they ultimately passed. And if you gave them a different type of tutoring, you could get those numbers to be quite dramatically different. Right. And, and you know, cultural uh, experiences have a lot to do with this entire conversation, I think. And, and you know, you have teams, you have teams of of, of litigators, you feel teams when you go out and you pitch business. Is diversity on your teams important to you? Is it important to your clients? And if so, why? Well, I, it, the answer is yes. Um, and I, I have made it, uh, I, it has become important to me to the extent that I have any influence in my own organization as a senior partner in a large law firm who's been successful, uh, it's important to me to do what I can to improve the, the let's call it the DEI equation. So I generally tried very hard to be, if not the only, maybe only one plus one white male on a given teaming. Uh, I'll, I'll give you a kind of an example. My daughter is a trial lawyer from Boston. She works at Goodwin. She was in trial recently in Los Angeles, I mean, in San Francisco in a really big case and was putting on some 
witnesses and her team was was three law firms kind of on the defense side. Uh, the lead partner was an African-American lawyer, very prominent lawyer from Los Angeles. The number two was an Asian-American woman. And then my daughter, obviously female. Uh, and the plaintiff's lawyers and all of their experts, she actually had a slide that she showed me that they used in their closing. Of the eight experts the plaintiffs had, all of them were white men, every single mm-hmm. one of them. And mm-hmm. the judge was an ethnically diverse judge in the Northern District of California. So I tell you that story because I think the world is looking less and less like me. Uh, and and I think if you're if you're practicing law in a commercial setting the way I do, you have to be acutely aware of how the world is changing. So just to be effective in court and in front of juries, you have to be very aware of what your team looks like, right? And and it's not just having people of diverse backgrounds on the team, they need to be doing meaningful and material activities. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, but more importantly, the clients are absolutely demanding it. Uh, I work with a lot of the big tech companies in the Valley and the vast majority of my clients uh, are are people of ethnic backgrounds that are different than mine, women, uh, LGBTQ members. So I, I think that we just have to recognize that for law firms to be successful in the future, it's not about just being altruistic and advancing a principle that we may believe in. It's commercially uh, uh, realistic to have a much more diverse workforce. And I think that the, the final challenge to this process is and it's not enough to have a diverse employment population. The, the decision makers, the leaders, the people doing the most important parts of the work have to be uh, have to be diverse. Otherwise, what you're just doing is you're almost reinforcing sort of implicitly the very problem itself. Right. And so, you know, that being said, how do you um, how, how do how do you reconcile the latest SCOTUS decision um, about affirmative action? And don't get me wrong, I hate that. I heard I hate that title, affirmative action. And I, I, I've I've said many times, I believe anybody who is successful, who claims that they have not uh, received any affirmative help to get there, is delusional. Um, but if the if if we start rolling back these these uh, the idea of more diverse um, classes in in schools and especially you know the the top schools, you know how do how how does that affect what you just described? Yeah, it's 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 a conundrum for sure. I mean. I'm not sure I'm really wise enough to address the larger issue of how higher education, particularly private universities, will deal with this ultimately uh, if they're supposed to be truly, you know, race neutral in their admissions process. I think corporate America has moved on, though, right? I think corporate America, and I define that kind of largely, I think we've decided that we want to have a very diverse workforce. I think that. Uh, most of corporate America believes that it's in their economic interest to be very more diversified than they are today and to have leaders across the executive suites, however defined that is, that reflect the the demogra- changing demographics and rapidly changing demographics of our society. So, you know, the court's ruling is what it is. 
Um, but I don't I don't personally see corporate America going back like or law firms. I, I think that the, the movement is too strong. I think our clients are demanding it. I think we want it for ourselves. I know in my firm, our, my, our CEO is incredibly committed to this to this principle and, and we are working very hard to implement it. So if, if there's a, a good news in that message, it's that I don't think corporate America wants to go back to uh, a world where they can just ignore what their employment population looks like. I agree. I, you know, and I, I was interviewed um, about this and, and that, that was my, my take. My take is that, you know, smart people who want to do the right thing for what, whatever reason, whether it's the right thing, whether it's economics, whether it's a combination of both, will figure out how to do what they, what needs to be done. Yeah, I agree with you. And, and, you know, look, and this is something we don't talk about that much, but I, I'm fond of saying it. A diverse workforce population makes the experience more interesting for everybody. Right. Right. Exactly. And, and you know, and you, you know, when I met you, you were a neophyte to this conversation and to this experience, right? And since then, I mean, you've... You know, you you you've met your wife. You you uh, spent a lot of time in Mexico, um, and so you know, lived experiences uh, mean a lot. And but most people who look like you, right, don't have those lived experiences. Don't necessarily know people who are different. Um, and you know, do you believe that? that your lived experience has made a big difference in how you approach this? I hope so. I mean, again, I I will be candid with you in saying that um, not too long ago, we we were at an event, let's just call it, and the comment was made, and I was relatively oblivious with to it, and we came home, and at least I had a conversation about it. And so, my point being, uh, I have to be reminded sometimes, right? Interesting. That I'm not, I'm still not aware of things that somebody in her position, you you know her, she doesn't look classically Hispanic. She's a little more, uh, she, the, the word that, that gets used a lot with her that we find, both of us find quite offensive is the word exotic. Exactly. Right? She's got, mm-hmm. she's got a, a Native American blood. And so it makes her look different than what people think of as prototypically uh, Hispanic or Mexican American, and so we hear that, and that term, you know, people mean it sort of, I think, in a nice way. But no, oh, she's she's so exotic looking, which is you're kind of like exotic means exotic compared to what? Right. right? That's sort of the baseline, and you start going down that trail, and you start to see where it's headed. Uh, so those are examples of life experiences where you know the person you you love and lived with is experiencing those things, and it it does. It does heighten your awareness to it, uh, and you know. And and when I go to family events, the, our family is a very classic modern American family, right? right? We have you know ethnic Chinese, we have uh, Christians, we have Jews, we have atheists, we have gays, right? We have a lot. Our family is a very mixed up, big, uh, you know, 
multicultural experience. And I think that has also helped a lot. I, I think the reality is, though, the way we live in our society is still largely very segregated. Yes. And, and so the, it's very possible that you don't get, you know, life experiences. I mean, I, I've always thought it was easy to be bigoted at sort of a macro level. It's much harder at a micro level on a one on one basis when you actually get to know somebody. Right. Well, and, you know, what's what Lisa uh, experiences, what I experience, you know, is interesting because we we understand our lived experience as as minorities right but we also understand the the majority lived experience we have to because we've we're forced to in order you know to to exist in society but it doesn't what you're saying and this is true is it doesn't necessarily go the other way. You know, you don't the the majority does not have to understand. And and it's hard, I think, to understand because because you're not being treated um the same way um as as we are. It 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 is, as you say, it's a conundrum. Um, but it 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 it's it's again, it's exhausting. Yeah, and I think you know my my feeling about all of this, and I've probably been much more open to speak about it much later in my career than I was in, in my younger days, is that we're not talking as openly and as candidly as we should about it. Um, that, that you know, our tribal politics, um, the, the increasing challenges that we see, the social justice movements of the last few years have made people sort of unwilling or reluctant to engage in a public discourse about these very thorny issues. Because if we don't talk about it, if we don't address them, nothing's really going to change. At least that's how I see it. Right. So, okay. So, you know, let that was, this is, has been a pretty serious but important conversation. And I appreciate you um, going down the, that road with me, no pun intended, like roads. Um, but let's talk about some of your your fun clients, your your interesting clients, these these uh, influencers and entertainers. What what's that like um, to to be in that world as a, as a lawyer? Well, you know, at the end of the day, they're 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 clients, and so as long as you're serving them as clients and like you would anybody else, it's 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 a pretty normal experience. Now, you know, I. I've I've been in a lot of contexts with some very famous people. I mean, going to lunch with I, I spent a lot of time with the Kardashian family. So going to lunch with Kim, for example, becomes a bit of an ordeal um, <laughs> because you know the, the being in public with them is different. We had a big trial a year ago for the whole family where I had for about a month in L.A. Superior Court downtown. We had Kim, Chris. Uh, Kylie and Chloe and just getting them in and out of the courtroom was a whole process, you know, working through the security, dealing with the paparazzi, dealing with the media, all of those things. Um, but I, I don't really differentiate that much between those types of clients and the traditional corporate clients that we work with a lot. Um, the metaphor I use a lot in uh, is based on the English show Downton Abbey. I view the lawyers as people that live downstairs. The clients, <laughs> the clients are the people that live upstairs. And if you understand that you're in a service 
business and you're providing you know, stellar judgment and excellent service to your clients, then it's a great life, right? And and then everybody uh, is happy. I think sometimes, particularly in Hollywood, I'll just call it Hollywood, uh, the lawyers and advisors to very famous people sometimes think it's about them. Uh, and I think that's where you get into trouble. And so who are your, so other than the Kardashians, which I have to admit, I've never seen anything that any of them have done. Who Who else? Who are you representing that I might have heard that I well, might be okay, more so familiar with? Well, okay, so how about J- Justin Bieber, for instance? Or, yeah, uh, heard of him. P. P. Diddy. Uh, you okay. May have heard, you heard of him. Uh, a little I'm bit rep- about him. I'm representing uh, an actress named Taraji Henson and helping her with her beauty brand. Oh, uh, nice. Yeah, so I represent um, Adriana Lima. She's a supermodel, for example. Okay. So, you know, there you go. There's okay. A handful. Just, just I'm not few. gonna I'm not gonna give it all away for free. Just a, just a few little names there. <laughs> um. So, what advice? Oh, I do have one other one other question before I wrap this up. You know, there's a lot of there's a lot of talk right now about AI, and I don't know if you know, but my daughter Taylor is a writer. Um, she's currently on the double picket line for WGA and um, SAG. Uh, and one of their big concerns is is AI is and I I don't know if that's something that uh, is tangential or or that you touch on in your or expect to have to deal with in your practice. But, you know, what are what are your thoughts about AI? Well, it's it's very much top of mind. And in fact, this week I'm meeting with some of the leaders in the space, some of the biggest companies in the space to talk about uh, a handful of lawsuits that have been filed in the last week or so. So I'll be judicious in the way I talk about, you know, how I perceive the legal issues around it. Um, But yes, it is going to transform a lot of our economy. I mean, I've I've uh, heard people argue that it is tantamount to the invention of electricity or 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 software. Right. It's going to just transform everything. Some good, some bad, probably. Um, I have a niece who's also a writer, uh, you know, a, a, a screenwriter. So she's uh, she's she's out of work too. Um, so I relate to what Taylor's going through, and, and you know, the concerns about just you know, you take musical compositions, right? Whether you ask for generative AI to give you a Drake-like song, or you ask generative AI to give you a script based upon a set of plot characteristics and and characters, Um, the use of copyrighted material for training a a large language model or or a a large pictorial model that can generate uh, images. These are very complicated uh, legal and policy issues that will be getting sorted out in the coming years. But I think it is a very substantial uh, uh, development in the technology world and, and one that uh, I, I hope to be dealing with for the next few years. In the celebrity space, you know, one of the big concerns is can you use generative AI to create, let's say that Merle Vaughn is a is a celebrity. Can I use generative AI to create somebody who looks and feels like a Merle Vaughn but isn't Merle Vaughn? Right. Um, you know, the deep fake problem for political and, and counter intelligence operations. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, interesting aspects of this. 
but like a lot of things, it's it's a neutral tool that will have tremendously beneficial uh, things for people as well. I'm not recommending that people use it to write legal briefs, but. <laughs> so you sound really excited about what you're doing, what is, you know, what the future holds for your practice. Do you have any plans to slow down anytime soon? Well, I should, given my age. Um, I, I really am not somebody who thinks a lot about retirement. Um, I could retire. I am. I, I, you know, I have hobbies. I like to golf. I, I ride motorcycles. I work in the garden, but I'm really bad at those things. And so <laughs> I, I figure if I just wanted to be bad at something all the time, uh, I could, but I'm not really sure what the point of that is. So I, I'm not somebody who really is interested in not working. Uh, I, I think my work regimen is very different today than it was 10 or even 15 years ago. You know, in terms of the type of things you're doing, the way you're spending your day, what your time allocation looks like. But as long as it's interesting, then, yes, I want to be a part of it. And the the odd thing about this profession is, you know, the, the older you get, particularly in litigation or somebody who goes to court, you, you're almost in more demand at this right. age than, than you ever were. So it, it is kind of an odd thing. Uh, I consider myself a pretty useful person. Um in the sense that I try to be somewhat frivolous and silly at times, and I don't take myself seriously. So I think those characteristics serve me well in terms of my ability to continue doing this at a high level, at least for now, for some time. Then may, I may wake up and, and in a petulant rage decide that I'm done with it, but who knows? <laughs> well, one, I hope you do it for, for a long, long time. And I have to say, I didn't know you play golf. I'm a big golfer now, so the next time you're in L.A., let's, let's, let's play. Let's um, do it. Yeah. And so one of the things that we didn't touch on is authenticity. And and you're one of the people who I've always felt has has um, had the courage and been confident enough to to be his authentic self. And um, can you as you know, give us or give some advice to to other lawyers, young lawyers, diverse lawyers about how to walk through uh this this um walk walk through this this uh the legal system and 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 our profession and and try to maintain their authenticity yeah i i i think it's probably i, I have a strong personality candidly right so it probably right. comes nat naturally to me to be who i am and what i am you know i when i was young i i I worked for a, a partner at Gibson Dunn who I just thought was the most amazing lawyer in court. And he was tall and handsome and he had that beautiful prairie baritone. And here <laughs> I am, I'm five foot seven and I'm sarcastic and sort of intense. And I thought to myself, well, that's never going to work for me. I got to just, you know, <laughs> you got to just own it for what you are. Um, I think in, at least in what I do, which is where you're trying to persuade people. And I think a persuasion is less about, let me tell you something that I want you to believe, and more of, can I reduce your intrinsic subconscious barrier to the information that I want to give to you, right? Can I just get you to lower your guard a little bit, and maybe I can get some stuff over into your your area so you might actually digest it and think about it, right? So right. a lot of persuasion is just trying to reduce the inherent barriers that are there. 
And there's no, no bigger buzzkill in the world than somebody who's inauthentic, right? That's just, right. it doesn't work. So from a practical standpoint, you just got to be who you are. So if you're soft-spoken and, and demure, then be that. If you're intense and, and you know, aggressive, then be that. I mean, you, you, ultimately, in the end, people are, are most persuaded by people that come across as genuine, sincere, not selling you a bill of goods and not putting on some act, right? Just not, you know, feigning some some personality. And I think when you're young, you're, you're pretty good litigation. Uh, if you ever went back, this is, we're dating ourselves. We went back to the legal newspapers of our day and you looked for ads for litigator. It always said, what? Aggressive litigator wanted, right? That was right. sort of the characteristic. And, you know, I tend to get along with opposing counsel. Like I try to be kind even to people that are really horrible human beings because that's just who I am. So I, I think you have to be. But specifically, I'll tell you a very short story about somebody I think you know, a okay. woman named Alex Johns. Mm -hmm. And Alex was, uh, if you ever said movie, uh, first Spike Lee movie, she's got to have it. Yeah. That's Alex's sister. Oh, okay. and looks just and Alex looks a lot like her. She's she's been at the FCC in-house counsel for many many years, and she was a Cooley associate. And she and I had a case, and so she is a African American woman, and we went to court in Orange County one day many years ago, and she was going to argue something, and she showed up and argued and did a great job. And we walked out, and she said, "How'd I do?" I said, "You did great," but I go, "What on earth are you wearing?" And she had this, she had this, you know, in the 80s, remember these horrible sort of skirt suit things with the big bow? Yeah. Yeah. She had one of those on. And I said, Alex, I know we're in Orange County, but yeah, everybody's going to see that you're a beautiful, young African-American woman. So let's just rock that in the court next time and not try to pile on all this very conservative clothing because she was clearly very uncomfortable in it. Uh, and that's kind of my funny way of saying you know if that's who you are then absolutely just be that great that's because you're gonna be you're you're gonna be better off in the end right because people are gonna notice either way and if you're uncomfortable in, in the just the, the physical outfit you brought to the party then that's not gonna make you very effective i think that is perfect advice um uh and you know and, and if 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 you being you makes people uncomfortable you know, that's kind of their problem, right? Yeah. I'm sure you've made a few folks uncomfortable over the years. You think? <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but you know what? Uh, I've also made a, a, a lot of really good friends uh, through those types of conversations, you being one of them. Well, it's been a long journey for both of us, and I'm glad we're still connected in some form or fashion. Yeah, so I just want to say thank you, Mike, for being here to BS with me today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Please give Lisa a hug for me. I will. You be well. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good. It is. That's what I'm talking about. Wait. Okay, now from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world. <laughs>